Invest in your leadership and business skills at AUA 2023 with the new AUA Institute for Leadership and Business Track. Join the Institute at the AUA annual meeting in Chicago for an opportunity to grow your leadership and business skills. The new ILB track features seven courses, offering a combined total of 16 hours of programming that will enhance your business acumen, activate your interest in business and finance, and inspire you to become a leader in your practice and the field. To accommodate the robust schedule of AUA 2023, each of the seven live courses will be recorded for access on demand after annual meeting. Resident discounts are available. Visit auanet.org forward slash AUA2023 to learn more and add the ILB track to your registration. The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This special episode comes to you from the AUA 2022 Instructional Course, Complications of Vaginal Mesh. For more great educational content, we look forward to seeing you in Chicago next week for AUA 2023. Thank you for coming, everyone. We're going to go ahead and start, let people trickle in, but thank you for being here on time. And uh, this is 81C, Complications of Vaginal Mesh. I'm Kamran Sajadi. I'm going to introduce the rest of the faculty in just a moment. I want to say thank you so much for coming to this on the last day of the AUA. Uh, the AUA policy states that all planners, authors, and presenters must disclose prior to their presentation all relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. These disclosures are posted on the AUA's annual meeting website for easy access please visit the website. They give me the URL to read, but I'm not going to read it. No photos, video, or audio recordings are permitted. Courses are selected based on evaluation results. You will be receiving an evaluation. I do encourage you to, to uh, submit an evaluation of the course. The AUA takes these seriously. We also read the evaluations. If there's specific things you want to hear more of or you want to hear less of, please tell us as well, because we'd love to incorporate that in a future year. If you, yeah, 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 and so if you fill that out, it'll really make a difference for us. Um, for every course evaluation you complete, your name's gonna be entered into a drawing for a complimentary registration for the AUA next year, which is in Chicago. So please do that. So welcome to Complications of Vaginal Mesh. I'm Kamran Sajadi. I'm at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. This is Dr. Farzine Farusi. He's the director of FPMRS an associate professor of urology at the Smith Institute at Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. And on the far right, Chris Tengerjaya. He is the uh, co-director of medical education at the LA Medical Center, Kaiser Permanente, Los Angeles Medical Center Urology. He specializes in voting dysfunction and female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. The three of us have no disclosures. There are learning objectives, which you've seen when you've enrolled for the course. We don't need to go through them individually right now, but I do want to outline what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to first have an introduction from Dr. Tangerjaya that talks about mesh, both their types and terminology. It'll be a good introduction. And then I'm going to return and talk specifically about complications of mid-urethral synthetic slings. Dr. Farusi will then talk specifically about complications from the use of prolapse mesh. And then all of us are going to have a, panel, a case and panel discussion 
Um, throughout the entire course, we've, we've built it in so we have enough buffer time to encourage interaction. Please interrupt if you have any questions. We'd love to hear them. We'd love to hear other people's thoughts on how you manage these situations. In addition, Dr. Tengarjaya has brought prizes to encourage audience participation. And they're pretty cool prizes. So I think you guys are gonna be very impressed. We really hope that everyone learns something cool and has a good time. And uh, I'm going to now turn the table over to Dr. Tengarjaya. Thanks, Dr. Sajadi, for inviting me uh, to be here today, and thank you for all of you for joining us today. Like Dr. Sajadi said, we try to make this as interactive as possible, so uh, if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to interrupt. This is a small enough group. I think we can keep it really intimate, and I think that's one of the benefits of, uh, even though it's a small group, we can all be together like this. So again, I'm Chris Tangerjaya. I work uh, out of Los Angeles Medical Center. I have a few of my residents here who will probably harass me and harangue me, but that's okay. Uh, again, I have no disclosures. And then in regards to the objectives, for my part, I'm batting lead off, so I'll talk about synthetic graph composition. I always usually start off any lecture with what makes me happy, because that gives a personal touch to the lecture. So being here, seeing you all in person makes me happy. Uh, negative COVID tests makes me happy. Hopefully I'm still negative when I get back, otherwise my patients are gonna be very upset because I can't be in clinic tomorrow morning. I also work with residents. Uh, when they're learning, I'm learning as well. That makes me happy and that brings me joy. Uh, if my kids are hugging it out, love is the answer. Love is the answer all over the world. Hopefully we can all learn that one day. Uh, being on a stream and fishing makes me happy and taking pictures makes me happy as well. Not necessarily swimming with jellyfish. So mesh complications, why do we care? I updated these slides recently. Before, we pegged it at around 11% risk of needing some sort of stress urinary incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse uh, in the age of a female over time. Now it's about 20%. And we know that the population is only aging even more, so rightfully so, some of these patients are going to be augmented with some type of mesh repair. And so that demand is going to increase with time, and so therefore you as a urologist, your gynecologist, need to be aware of all the mesh complications associated with it. As a frontline provider, you're also dealing with patients and whatever information you can give them. There's a lot of misinformation out there. We know that in regards to the vaccines. You should be able to provide the correct information in regards to mesh. Right? And so there are several studies in the past on patients' perspectives in regards to mesh. Some think there's a recall. In the United States, there is not a recall. Uh, there might be a, a bunch of us who don't practice in the United States. Just show of hands, how many are uh, international today? Okay. And, and how many of you actually still are able to use mesh products where you're at? Okay, perfect. Um, and so we're still able to use mesh products here, but a lot of patients do think there's a recall, the mesh needs to be taken out and whatnot, and so you might see some patient in your clinic that says there's a recall on mesh, you need to take it out. Also, uh, within the United States and probably your respective countries, as you know, there's a timeline in regards to mesh. In 2008, there was a public health notification from the FDA saying that there's serious complications associated with transvaginal mesh. 2011, there was another public health notification. In 2016, if you're from the United States, I'm sure you read every morning the Federal Register of the FDA to know that there was a classification from a class two to class three for these products, meaning that there's a high risk in regards to that. And then in 2019, eventually what happened was that the FDA asked those manufacturers to stop selling those products. And so that may be where the misinformation occurs and that they think, okay, there's a recall, but in fact, that's not it. We just asked them to stop selling transvaginal mesh products, right? 
Now going back to pelvic organ prolapse, because I said I'd go over surgical graft materials. And so we know that most of our information has come in from pelvic organ prolapse and hernia repairs. And so this is a herniation right in the pelvic floor. And so the original kind of classification was made in 1997 by Ahmed. Most of us know this pretty well from type one to type four. And this is by micron size of the pores. And so type one graft material is gonna be a macroporous material, right? So that's greater than 75 microns going all the way down in regards to that. This is a scanning electromicrograph because we all like to look at pictures. And so you can see here it definitively in terms of type one versus type two and type three types of different meshes that are used and also the pore size there. In terms of different lightweight materials, you can see another scanning electromicrograph from the you know, 2014 paper that was published here. Uh, a lot of us will use some side of mesh like this for abdominal sacral cobalpexy, um, but you can see the type of knit that you're having here. So, as urologists, we all know size matters. I, I love this button, uh, prostate's really small, um, but we're not talking about prostate today, we're talking about mesh, and so size matters in regards to the porosity, right? And the reason that matters is because when you implant a foreign material into a host body, you're gonna have some sort of inflammatory reaction. The perfect graft would obviously be something that's compatible with that host material and then incorporate nicely to buttress the repair. We don't have that perfect graft yet, and in regards to what's happening is you get an inflammatory response and you get polymorphonuclear cells that go into the area, so that's about five to 15 microns in size. You also get macrophages that also go into that area, so that's around 10 to 20 microns. So you can imagine if it's a submicronic pore, you're gonna not have a good host response, you're gonna have uh, encapsulation of inflammation, all these things, and it's not gonna incorporate well. So that is not gonna work well to buttress your repair. So, that was a 1997 classification that I showed you, and so we're now in 2022, so where are we? So various different classifications have been put out there in terms of graph material. Obviously, there's different biologics and whatnot. In uh, 2012, a group had said, okay, well, let's not do it that way in terms of what Ahmed did in 1997. We'll talk about porosity, and so this classification scheme one through six came out in terms of porosity, and what that actually means is, and you've seen this if you've taken out mesh, right? It's the incorporation of that mesh, and when you take it out, what the actual textile porosity is, and what I mean by that is, the textile porosity is what the manufacturer does before you put it in, and then there's the effective porosity. So basically, that's the scar tissue that forms, the local response, the tissue response, and everything else. So obviously, you want a more closely tight-knit, effective, to textile ratio, right, instead of losing a lot of that with scar tissue. So therefore your effective ratio would go down and your graph material would not be well incorporated. So that's a different way of looking at different mesh classifications. This is up here for historical standard. If you're taking out mesh, a lot of times, if you can get the op note, it'd be nice to know. And then these are different products that were out for transvaginal kits. Um, obviously these are not on the market anymore because of 2019 for us here in the United States. Um, but then you do your Dr. Google search so you can figure out, oh, where was it placed, how was it placed, and that's always important in terms of how you're going to address it. Uh, stress urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse materials out here. This is a limited classification, not classification, but all the name brands that are out there now. I'm not saying one's better than the other, I'm just showing you what's out there. And then in terms of terminology, this is a plea out there, and I'm not asking you that you necessarily need to use these terms all the time, but when you have a mesh complication, someone comes in your office, you're probably not the first person to operate on that person, you're probably not gonna be the last person. And here's the reason why terminology is important. It's so that, and my residents know this, it's you wanna be able to speak the same language, right? And so if we're doing a POP-Q classification, the reason that's important, speaking the same language, standardization, same thing with this one. And so as you can see here, the ICS tried to make a big move to say, 
Erosion is not specific enough to tell you where that mesh is and kind of give you a picture. And so that's the reason why you have exposure, extrusion, perforation, different words like that so that we're all speaking the same terminology and what's happening in regards to this mesh complication. They went as so far to do a CTS system, and I'm not going to ask about this. About two or three years ago, we asked about this, and everyone failed miserably in terms of trying to answer what the complication was. And that's pretty much standard. It's because it's so complex that no one really uses it. It's cumbersome. And even though it's nice to codify things, I mean, you know, Surgeonc does their CTS. We don't really do it that way, and so uh, we don't use that. Lastly, uh, from my part of the lecture, there is no risk of cancer that shows causality between mesh and cancer, inflammatory disease states in cancer, and all those other things. I just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page in regards to that. If you are taking out mesh, be sure to really, uh, really tell that patient, hey, there are risks with it. The first dictum is do no harm, right? Someone might want it out just because they want it out, but you should be very well that there's risk of increased transfusion, recurrence of pelvic organ prolapse, recurrence of incontinence, extreme morbidity associated with whatever you're gonna do, right? So if you've ever done a thigh dissection, it can be fun to take it out. Dealing with the patient afterwards may not be fun, so you should be very well aware of how to deal with the complications afterwards. Um, there was a paper that was published out in 2020, and I think it's actually a nice way to go through a stepwise progression of, okay, I have a sacral colpexy mesh that eroded, it exposed somewhere, it perforated, how do I take care of it? So a nice stepwise algorithm in regards to that. I thought also important, and this is where we have uh, kind of that interaction here. Anyone feel brave enough with a coffee in their system this morning to come up and just maybe say how they would explain the surgery they did? So let's say you did the surgery on the right. And so I think the pointer is working. So let's say you did this surgery. And this is for a prize. How would you, how would you describe it? The mic is right there or I'll run with a mic to you. This is the interactive portion. Don't make my residents do it. I already give them enough. I already bought them dinner last night. No? Yeah, how would you describe it? In your op note. Because we're going to advance you to 10 years out. Say so like removal of the suburethral and retropubic portions of yeah, perfect. And so, as you would describe it, you know, you're removing the suburethral portion of that mesh, right, and also retropubic. So what they said was, I'm doing a complete vaginal mesh excision and extravaginal, which is this portion up here, but you wouldn't say a total because you're not removing the, sub, the, the suprafascial arms, okay? Um, so that was a nice way for them to classify that. And the reason being is because, you know, if you've seen these op notes, if you're lucky to get the op note, you may wonder, what in the heck was done? I removed mesh, right? And so the person comes back to you saying, I have mesh in there, but you have no clue how much was removed. And if you have the path report, you could say, okay, maybe two centimeters were removed, but maybe not. But if you describe it in a great manner and extent that way, uh, that helps whoever is coming after you or if you're going back in to delineate what's going on. So I think that was really helpful in regards to that. So it's speaking that kind of, same kind of language in regards to that. Again, in regards to removing this, uh, you would say that you're doing a mostly vaginal removal and then extravaginal to this area here, but you wouldn't be removing the whole entire extent of it because uh, past this area here, past sacrospinous ligament fixation, arcus tendineus, you're not removing that, so it's not a total excision, right? And then you'd also put laterality in terms of that in case someone else had to go back in. So uh, that's my part. Uh, I do want to get you your prize. To show you, I do have prizes, and so this might incentivize people to participate more.
prizes are real. So, uh, There's still more time. So I'm going to talk about mid-urethral synthetic sling complications. We're going to talk about mesh extrusion, bladder outlet obstruction, pain disorders, organ perforation, etc. So let's, it's very important to always get a history when evaluating these patients. What are the voiding symptoms that they're complaining of? Is it weak stream, straining, dribbling, sensation of incomplete emptying? How is their continence currently? How is their storage symptoms, the urgency, the frequency, the nocturia? Do they have retention? Have they had urinary tract infections of their cultures? And then very important is always the temporal relationship between the sling and the symptoms. Sometimes this is more clear than other times, it, and it may be influenced by how long it's been since they had their surgery compared to when they're seeing you in your office. Pain symptoms, you know, I always want to assess for dysuria, but as we're all urologists, we're used to seeing patients referred for dysuria, and it could be all sorts of different things. Is the pain, dysuria is painful urination, but do they experience it in the bladder? Do they experience it in the urethra? Do they experience it at the opening or down in the vagina? Or is it more of a diffuse feeling? Do they have dyspareunia? And if so, where do they feel it? Is it influenced by certain positions or certain sexual techniques? If they have chronic pelvic pain, what's the location? What makes it better, what makes it worse? Do they have other symptoms or signs of central sensitization? Um, one thing that I found useful is, uh, for some patients is to use the central sensitization index. It's easily Googleable, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit cumbersome, but it can help uncover if they have more of a generalized um, response to sensation that may indicate they might be less likely to improve with a surgical intervention. Uh, the surgical history, you know, despite how many times we hear it, there's really not any such thing as a bladder sling. We want to actually know what they had done. You know, it's nice if you can find the make and the model, and it's nice if you can get the operative note to actually find out what the technique was, um, how well described the technique was. Is it retropubic? Is it transobturator? Is it a single incision sling? Uh, you also want to know what else they had done at the same time because a patient may blame the sling, but they also had a hysterectomy, an anterior and posterior repair, or something else. And any of those other things, as we know, can change the patient's lower urinary tract function. So obviously, like Dr. Tangerjaya said, you wanna see if they've already had other revisions and hopefully as our participant, they, they described them as well as our participant did, so you actually know what was done. On physical examination, you know, it's very important to, of course, do an abdominal pelvic examination, assess their estrogen status. And I like to palpate and visualize the course of the sling if I can. I, if the patient, if I'm not able to get an operative note, not able to get a good history from the patient, you know, I start looking for little scars in the thigh creases or in the suprapubic region, try to figure out what's going on. Um, palpation with the digit 
is much more sensitive for a mesh extrusion in the vagina than looking with your eyes. Um, it's just you feel that bristle, kind of like on my stubble, as you would have um, <laughs> compared to um, just seeing. Sometimes you might feel something, not be able to see it. If you have loops in your office, this is a good time to run out and grab them because sometimes you might just see a couple little fine bristles of mesh and it can be an extremely small exposure, but a patient, some patients feel that and they are very bothered and they actually get better if you address it. Um, when there's not an exposure, it's, and even when there is exposure, it's also good to know if they have tenderness on examination, if that's actually reproducing the symptoms that they came to see you for. And I almost always get a urinalysis and a post-void residual on these patients because it's pretty easy to do in a urology office. Um, you also want to evaluate for concomitant prolapse. You know, a woman had a sling years ago and is having trouble peeing. If there's a big cystocele, that might be part of the explanation. And you also want to evaluate for high tone pelvic floor dysfunction because it's a very prevalent condition. Cystoscopy is sometimes indicated, but not always. It's, I would say it's definitely indicated in the evaluation of these patients when they have hematuria, when they have a temporal relationship to recurrent UTIs. I think it's reasonable to, if the urinalysis is normal and they have recurrent UTIs and they are a postmenopausal woman, I think it'd be reasonable to do a short course of estrogen and then reevaluate, but you want to keep in mind this should be evaluated. Um, it can be in, uh, helpful in pain disorders, and then I almost always do a cystoscopy if I'm evaluating for obstruction, because I, because if there's obstruction, I need to know if the sling is also perforating the urethra and or the bladder, because it's a completely different operation to treat that disorder. A normal cystoscopy does not rule out obstruction. An obstructive sling, it's very easy still to place a flexible or rigid cystoscope through the urethra, but it does rule out urinary tract perforation. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's definitely true, and yeah, it's, it's a great point, Dr. Tangerjaya. You, you, your, your partner who is, specializes in oncology and is looking for bladder tumors and they don't see a bladder tumor, they, they may not be as focused on what you're focused on, so that's a good thing to keep in mind. Urodynamics is not always indicated in these patients. There was, a, there was a, a good discussion in the plenary yesterday by Dr. Cameron kind of pointing this out. Patient who comes, has a sling, you know, a month ago and hasn't been able to pee since, you know that they're obstructed. You don't need to do urodynamics on that patient. 
but in, there are other times where you see a patient and it's not as clear cut and it can be helpful to delineate bilateral obstruction there. Another thing it can be helpful for is sometimes the Schuster overactivity is actually the cause of the pain. This is where it's really helpful to be present if you can for your urodynamics because then you can just ask the patient, you know, like, are you having that pain now when you're seeing this thing happen on the urodynamics? Um, and it's also helpful to evaluate for persistent, recurrent, or de novo incontinence of any form. Um, fluoro, if you have the capability, is very helpful for bladder outlet obstruction because it helps delineate the location of the obstruction. And, you know, patch EMGs, I think we all kind of, uh, a lot of us agree that patch EMGs during, during urodynamics, which are the most common, they're not always that reliable. And I think a lot of patients have been falsely diagnosed with detrusor sphincter dysinertia when it's really from a sling. If you don't have the capabilities to do fluoroscopy, uh, I've sometimes recommended to people to just send the patient for avoiding cystourethrogram. I know it's another procedure, another catheter, but if it helps clarify the clinical situation, it can be really helpful. This is an example of a urodynamics on a patient who had a prior sling from, uh, let me see the laser. It's very important not to look at the nomogram on your printed urodynamics because a lot of times this is the Abrams-Griffith nomogram for bladder outlet obstruction in men and they will be misclassified as non-obstructive. Women do not require as strong of a detrusor contraction to void as men do and in general we consider obstruction in women with a detrusor contraction greater than 20 in association with a low flow. Some people use 12, some people use 15 as a cutoff. And again, a temporal relationship is very important. And I do think the fluoroscopy can be really helpful because you see a situation like this. This is actually a pretty trabeculated bladder in certain parts, and she's voiding. This, the urethra should not be this dilated in the proximal urethra, and it cuts off right here, and you see some more voiding down here. This is where the sling is. She's obstructed. It's interesting on your UDS pattern there, but if you were on the plenary session, you saw a UDS with a peak data of like 100, right? So that's kind of a gimme, right? But what Dr. Sajati's showing here is that with that temporal relationship um, and that peak data of 20 and that fluoro, that's kind of diagnostic if they're having symptoms of a fluid that can be obstructed. Oh, absolutely. This is more typical of what I see in patients this who I'm doing. This is, this is actually most common. I do see those hundred ones sometimes, but then when, I'm like, when I see that, I'm like, goodness gracious, that's a lot of obstruction. So that's a problem. So that's obstruction. We'll talk about how to treat it in a little bit, but I do want to talk about mesh extrusion. You know, depending on who you ask, it's three to five percent, sometimes three to eight percent. There's a lot of different variabilities in the literature about how often it happens. The presentation can be vaginal bleeding or spotting, dyspareunia, and or partner discomfort. Um, and so that it might be that if they're having 
penis and vagina intercourse, their partner has scrapes or pains on the penis with intercourse. It can be incidental. It might just be something you see at a six-month follow-up visit, in which case it might be asymptomatic. The etiology can be technical factors. There can be a vaginal buttonhole, which leads to an exposure of the sling. If it's, um, and that's, that's, that's what most likely will cause an exposure kind of in the lateral aspects or in the sulcus. I, I see this more commonly with trans obturator slings than retropubics. Is that anyone else's experience? Um, with, in a midline, they also occur, and that can be due to a dehiscence of the vaginal incision. It could be due to poor closure. I always try to, when I'm, I, you know, a lot of us work with residents and we, we try to, as we teach, we, we, we stress the importance of when you're closing that full thickness vaginal mucosa, you wanna make sure you're not accidentally snagging some of the sling with your suture because we feel like that might be leading to that. Control of that. There's a hematoma formation that can also um, expedite the cause for an extrusion as well. Right in that midline decision. My patients don't bleed. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent point. <laughs> so um, there can also be patient factors. You know, I think it's very important if a woman has genital urinary syndrome of menopause, with with it, 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 whether it's symptomatic or not, and you're planning on a sling, I think it's very important to get them on vaginal estrogen ahead of time, thicken that tissue up. It also, it goes back to technical factors. Was the sling actually placed deep enough? Because you don't want to go too deep, obviously, but some people place them a little bit too superficial because, you know, they have an appropriate fear of the urethra, but then it leads to this other complication. And certain patients may have uh, risk factors for poor tissue healing, such as, you know, they might be a heavy smoker, poorly controlled diabetic. I also listed radiation here um, historically, but, you know, current AUA guidelines recommend against the use of a synthetic sling in a patient who has had pelvic radiation. So be mindful of that. The management depends on the timing and the patient's symptoms. So some women can be asymptomatic, it's an incidental finding on your follow-up examination, or they went to go see their gynecologist who found it, sent them back to you, and, they're, um, and, and, and that's it. They don't have any symptoms. They're not sexually active or they're sexually active and they don't feel it. Um, it is more likely to be asymptomatic in a woman who's not sexually active with appropriate patient counseling about the finding Observation is a completely appropriate choice. Um, vaginal estrogen replacement probably will not resolve the issue. If it's a very early postoperative patient and the incision seems to have dehissed, I think it's a useful thing to try, and I would actually have the patient use it more frequently and directly in the area. Uh, it might help be helpful in a patient who has very minimal symptoms to see if they convert over to an asymptomatic patient. But once this is matured and is there and is um, symptomatic, it's not gonna make it go away. It might improve the tissue quality for your intervention. So if a patient's bothered, it's, you're going to probably proceed with a mesh extrusion. Some people do this in the office, some people do it in the operating room. 
I think it's appropriate to consider in the office if you are in the early post-operative period where it's very well delineated, it's not, the mesh isn't heavily scarred in place, and if it's small, and also if you have good lighting in your office for this kind of procedure, you have good help, you have good assistance, and uh, you have good local, uh, I think that's very critical because what you want to do if you're going to do this is you want to have this fixed in one little intervention. If you don't meet those criteria, I think it's very reasonable to go to the operating room. I do most of these in the operating room. Patient might get away with just a sedation or what we call a MAC, but you can also do a general anesthesia if, the, if it's more appropriate for the patient. And you're going to have better lighting, better exposure. The patient won't be moving. Better chance for success better chance for a happier patient. So here is a patient with a, uh, with a mesh extrusion. Um, this one is, uh, was very difficult to see because, I'm gonna see if I can show this. So that's what I have on there. We kind of encircled that way and made flaps on both sides and, ex and excised it. Um, this is, uh, you also want to make sure that you um, have the estrogen, like I mentioned. Uh, I like the Lone Star Retractor because it's, uh, you know, I don't often have multiple assistants in the operating room to help with assistance. The sharp hooks are much better for the vagina than the blunt hooks. Some people use silk sutures. I don't because I'm always afraid I'm going to forget to cut them out. And uh, intraoperative cystoscopy is always done in my hands because even if I did it beforehand, I got a cystoscope there. I'm going to put a Foley catheter in there anyway. I think it's really helpful to just have a much better look when the patient's under anesthesia and make sure I'm not missing something else. You want to have a margin of normal tissue around the exposure. So usually two to three millimeters at least. You want to do about one centimeter thick, well-vascularized, mobilized vaginal flaps. That's what you're going to bring together over the area after you excise the mesh. You also want to heavily irrigate. Make sure you have good hemostasis so you don't have another problem with the hematoma and a watertight closure. I, I'm a big fan of a running lock suture on vaginal mucosa, um, but you don't have to do that. Um, and. Uh, I'm going to show you some better illustrations after I talk about dyspareunia. So I have this picture here because, you know, like I was saying earlier, in my hands, my experience, trans-optrator slings are much more guilty of this than retropubic slings. And again, I'm talking about isolated dyspareunia without a mesh exposure. So the sling is there, you can feel it, you touch in the area, and the patient's like, yes, that's where it hurts when I try to have sex, and now we can't have sex. Bladder outlet obstruction, again, happens three to 5% of the time. That can present in a multitude of different ways. So patient has retention after sling. Again, I mentioned you don't have to do urodynamics. You know what the diagnosis is. I will say the caveat is, what if the patient had a sling and a hysterectomy and a prolapse repair? 
Do you guys wait longer? What do you think, Dr. Tangerjaya? What about you? I think that's, that's like that measure approach. You know, it's a shared decision, obviously, but I think um, I'm in favor of that as well. Yeah. Uh, how many in the audience would wait longer in a patient who had other procedures? Maybe longer than one to two weeks. And how many would intervene in a short time period? And everybody else is being shy, <laughs> which is fine. So yeah, there's some difference in opinion there, which I think is totally valid. I don't think we have a hard. I don't think we have hard data no. on that, which tells you the best opportunity. Um, patients may also they may not have retention. They may or they may not know they have retention. They may have recurrent UTIs because their PVR is 200, but they think they're paying great. We don't really have a clear idea of what the cutoff post void residual volume in women at which UTIs occur. That's another problem that we don't really know the answer to. They might have voiding dysfunction without retention. They, they have a PVR of zero, but I've literally had women come in and tell me that they have to yeah, bend, bend over. all the way over to pee every time. Or they do they talk about, tell me about they do the pee dance. They turn this way and that way. It's just, if they're spending, a woman shouldn't have to spend 10 minutes in the bathroom to pee. That's not normal, even if the PVR is zero. So the PVR doesn't rule out obstruction. So that's kind of what I was talking about. Dysuria, I put up up here too because in select patients, I've seen dysuria be present with obstruction and go away afterwards. I think voiding at a high pressure for some patients is painful. They can also, and this is the hardest, they might just have really bad urgency, frequency, urgency incontinence, and may not have, or may have very subtle voiding symptoms. I think these are the hardest ones for mm -hmm. me, and the ones where urodynamics may play the strongest yeah. role. Sure. And that's the, the yeah. And you, you'll see all varieties of these. Now, with management, you know, back to Dr. Tangerjaya's point about the patient who was really wet before her surgery and now is dry but may have some retention or some degree of obstruction. You know, when you talk about observant management, I do get a little bit worried about leaving alone a sling that might be too tight. Does anyone want to, hey, for a prize, who wants, to, who wants to say what I'm worried about? Yes. Erosion of what? Yes. Yes, and back to Dr. Tangerjaya's uh, previous discussion, you know, we, we, we call that perforation now just to be a little bit more specific about what's happening. But yeah, you don't want to leave a synthetic sling that's going to not move that's too tight against an organic organ. It's, I worry that it's going to work its way in there. So when I am going to intervene, a surgical intervention is going to be one of the following. A sling loosening is a great option for patients who are in the early post-operative period. But you really need to be within two weeks after the surgery for this to be effective. You open up the incision, the sutures are still there. 
you grab the sling and you pull it down one to two centimeters. This is associated with a slightly lower risk of recurrent stress incontinence than an incision. A sling incision is my preferred method for treating bladder outlet obstruction beyond two weeks. I'm gonna show you the technique of that. Sling excision should be reserved for a patient who has bladder outlet obstruction, but also other problems with the sling, and we'll get a little bit more into that later on when we talk about cases. It's very important to have a clear plan with the patient. Like Dr. Tangerjaya was saying earlier, you know, you're gonna delineate in your operative note exactly what you did, but you also wanna have an agreement with the patient, a conversation about what you're going to do and exactly how much you're going to do. So are you going to cut the sling? And if you're going to excise mesh, how much are you gonna excise? Dr. Ferruzzi? Right, so I was, I was gonna ask you a question, because uh, this is what I do when I take care of these patients, especially if I'm doing a sling excision. What do you do with that mesh that you've excised? Do you routinely send that off to pathology? If I excise mesh, I routinely send it off to pathology. Um, unfortunately, and why is that? Huh? And why is that? Because it's just another form of documentation that helps show that I actually removed something. Yeah, so I think that's, that's pretty much the reason why I do, because I, I, I don't know if folks in the audience have ever seen this before, but I've seen patients who've had sling incisions when really, in fact, they've just had scar excisions or incisions mm -hmm. and not actually incise or excise the mesh. So for me, sending it off is proof that the mesh was actually mm -hmm. incised, not just scarring or banding. So I think that's important. And I don't see it as often anymore, but uh, how often are you filling out the forms for the lawyer? Um, it hasn't been as much lately. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that the case? So yeah. they can get their, like, you know, 500 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> The, um, but yeah, you, you'll often have that. Sometimes the patients won't send the form until after surgery, which right. then struggles. At least the pathology department already has it, so they can grab it and give it to them. Um, now with a sling incision, it's an important point too, because what you're doing is you're just cutting the sling, and that's what resolves the problem in the majority of the cases. So you don't actually have to remove it for treatment but it can be helpful for documentation to just snip a couple millimeters of it off mm -hmm. and send it. If you don't wanna do that, what I've, what I've done instead sometimes is I just, we live in a digital age, I take a picture of the clamp behind the sling and I take another picture after it's cut and I attach both of those pictures to the operative note mm -hmm. and it's evidence. It show, it show, it, it's pretty clear then that I did something. That, that's, but that's also part of shared decision making and the understanding of what's going on, right? Because you're going to have patients who come back and they say, it's all out. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. We're trying to help you with your obstruction. I just cut it and I just have the pictures in there, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that really speaks to all these patients. I mean, and it's, it's, it's any surgery we do, right? As surgeons, it's counseling them appropriately. But especially in these patients who already have a poor outcome and they're already concerned about something to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because especially if you have photo documentation of it. And I still remember a patient who had a sling with a, a mesh extrusion in the vagina and a lot of pain issues from that, that we had this exact conversation about how much I was gonna take out and the risk. And, and yeah, she was, and afterwards she had recurrent stress incontinence, but also was saying that, you know, you took out more than you said you were going to take out. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, at least I feel good that it's documented what we talked about, but you know, you. You, you, you want to make sure that the patient's ultimately on the same page as you. Mm -hmm.
So you always have to counsel about that risk of recurrent stress incontinence. You know, it's uh, anywhere from 20 to 70% in the literature. I usually quote about a 50% risk. There is um, literature that suggests that a longer time interval between sling placement and, and sling incision is associated with a lower risk of incontinence. Two years is that cutoff. However, I would say that's not a good argument to wait Mm -hmm. I'm doing this because you don't want to wait longer and leave that patient obstructed because, you know, the risk of urethral perforation is there. And also, what are you doing to that patient's bladder when that bladder has to work harder to empty over the course of that two years? Mm -hmm. We don't know, but I wonder. So preoperative cystoscopy is also an important part. If I'm going to take a patient to the operating room for this, then I, I want to know ahead of time that I'm not going to be surprised by seeing mesh in the urethra or mesh in the bladder and have to change my operative plan. So here is a patient where we are doing a sling incision. yesterday, Dr. Cameron mentioned you should always go lateral to the urethra for um, an incision of the sling in order to avoid injuring the urethra. And some people do prefer that approach. Uh, I usually stay in the midline because it's what I'm comfortable with and I've had success with that. How, how, what do you guys think? I mean, I, I use the same exact technique dissecting behind. So once I have the clamp, right angle clamp behind the sling, I'm pulling it down away from the urethra. It's pretty safe to go right down the midline. I don't really have very much of a concern for urethral injury because, again, I've dissected and separated it off the urethra. Yeah, I mean, it's wherever I get an open space behind that, that, that mesh, right? And so it's trying to dissect all that tissue off and not just passing a blind clamp behind it and then getting in the urethra. So whether that be lateral or midline, it, it just depends on what it's giving me that day. space between the urethra and the sling. So what's your kind of tip, uh, Dr. Sajadi, if you can't find that sling? Do you have so tips? I was just going to ask oh, that. Oh, there we That's go. great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I'll tell you what my tips are. Um, a urethral sound can be helpful because you can actually crank it a little bit. If you don't have a sound, I'll also cystoscope. use the rigid cystoscope. And you, if you crank it, and the, the term crank, I know it might be sound a little harsh, but I always describe it as cranking it to deflect. the, to the, uh, to the residents Def and they know what I mean, so. Deflect. Deflect, <laughs> you deflect it, and it accentuates the restrictive band where that sling is, so you can find exactly where it is. The other thing is to look for what we call a step off, and that's where you put the scope in. With the rigid scope, I find this to be easier when the scope is upside down. So you're looking anteriorly, and you're pulling the scope out, and you feel a sudden change. Cringe. It catches, and that's right where the sling is. And after you've cut the sling, here is the scissors. You want to use curved mayo scissors or suture scissors. The mats, you're going to dull them up, and it's really hard to crunch through that. The other option is to just use your 15 blade that you already have, and it's a very 
rewarding and satisfactory tactile feedback you have from running that blade over there. Um, mesh feels just like cutting stubble on your face or your legs or whatever you might or may not shave. And then the sling springs apart usually. If you want to, you can take a picture of it or you can snip a little bit to show your evidence and there's a nice non-injured urethra right there. But I often, I always repeat the cystoscopy at this point. And when you've noted that, that step off before, it's gone. And that tells you that you've solved the problem. We take the catheter out and the patient um, pees in the uh, post-op area and they usually notice immediate relief. So I don't usually send them out with a Foley, as long, as long as the urethra is okay, I don't usually send them out with a Foley and plan avoiding trial later because unlike doing a, a, a TERP on a guy with a big prostate, the effect is pretty immediate in these patients. Here's another picture of the same thing. You can see that the hooks are in, in place to expose the vagina. This is a very, very heavily marked with the surgical marker midline incision. <laughs> I think we went a little overboard there. Um, we've made our incision after hydrodissecting with a little lidocaine with epinephrine, or you can use whatever you want. We make a midline incision back where we were. If you don't quite know where the sling is or you're further out from surgery, an inverted U incision sometimes mm -hmm. is helpful to just get a little bit broader exposure of the urethra. And here is the clamp behind the urethra. And the sling has been incised. Oh no, sorry. I, that view is just really small too. I'm gonna come down here. Here's the clamp behind the sling. Cut, close, solved. All right, next I want to talk about organ perforation. So, it depends on if it's the urethra or the bladder. These are the most common ones. The etiology can be chronic obstruction. So, sling, synthetic sling under tension for a long time against the, uh, against the urethra and you have erosion or sorry, perforation. The other thing we worry about in long-term slings in patients who might develop new or recurrent prolapse. So the sling has been sitting there minding its own business over time. Meanwhile, the anterior vaginal wall starts going down, 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 and you have a new form of tension against that sling, and that might be the cause. It can also be due to abnormal anatomy. I recently took one out of a patient who had a sling placed at that had a urethral diverticulum that was not addressed. And then there can be technical factors. Operating too close to the urethra, uh, a urethral injury at the time of placement, and then proceeding with a synthetic sling. The AUA stress incontinence guidelines currently state that if you have a urethral injury at the time of a sling, you should not proceed with placing the synthetic sling at that time. Now, what about the bladder? I think a lot of us think that this has to do with technical aspects, uh, placing the sling and, through the bladder and potentially missing it. So this is where technique plays a big role. You want to make sure that the bladder is empty when you pass your trocars. You want to make sure that you do a really good cystoscopy with your trocars in place. You have to use the 70 degree lens to get a good view of the entire bladder when you place your sling. And you want to make sure that the bladder is adequately full. You can miss a perforation 
because the bladder is not adequately distended and you might have two little folds on both sides that meet and as they separate, you can see the sling, the trocar intervening. The other thing is a very large air bubble at the top of the bladder can obscure a perforation. So I'll often evacuate an air bubble if I have that. The other th thought is a partial thickness perforation that can work its way over time. So one of the things I do when I place a retropubic sling in particular is as I'm doing my cystoscopy, I wiggle the trocars and I want to make sure that the bladder fully slides over that trocar and that it's not being tented at the time. If it's tented, I will repass the trocar after emptying the bladder because I'm concerned that I've gone through the muscle of the bladder and even though it's not in the urothelium, I, I don't know what the natural history of that sling that's partially through the wall over time is, but I don't want to find out. The, I'd say the other factor is even aside from erosion or future erosion or um, exposure would be uh, the risk of pain. So when you have that mesh through the, the muscle of the bladder, it's not uh, unusual for that patient to describe bladder pain afterwards. So another reason why to that's repass a, the trocar. That's a great point. You know, we, we, all, we all put sutures in bladder walls all the time, and what do patients have? They have bladder spasms. So we don't like that. Oh, sorry, I thought I heard someone say speak up. Um, so here is a cystoscopy. This all looks fine and dandy. And as you start to pull the scope back, this is a patient who had a urethral diverticulum with a sling going through. So this is a technical factor. The urethral diverticulum should have been treated and either a concomitant or most commonly nowadays delayed non-synthetic fascial sling should have been done. This is a patient with a uh, TVT that is placed too close to the urethra and also too proximal in the urethra. This is at the bladder neck. Mm -hmm. That's not where it belongs. Mm -hmm. This is a sling that has sawed through the urethra. And then this is, this is a more subtle sling because this one doesn't have the blue fibers mm -hmm. in it. So you have to be careful that different makes and models have different appearances. But we all recognize that this is not a native part of the urinary tract. And sometimes, the urethra and the bladder are not the only things that can be involved. This is a patient of mine's colonoscopy. And uh, she, she had the trifecta because it actually was in the colon, the urethra, and the bladder. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's a complicated case. I want to know before I go to the operating room if I need a colorectal surgeon. <clears throat> We, we can't all be married to one. <laughs> Dr. Ferruzzi's wife is a fantastic colorectal surgeon, if you did not know. So urinary tract reconstruction, I would say, is the more complicated of any of the topics that I've, I've talked about so far here. You always want to have a clear plan of your approach of whether you're going abdominally, laparoscopically, robotically, or vaginally. With the urethra, how many people have used the laser in the urethra to treat uh, mesh? Anybody in the audience? Fantastic. How did it work out? That's a great point. <laughs> How about you guys? I, I haven't had experience in the urethra using it. Typ my approach would be typically transvaginal excision. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I not in the urethra. Yeah, and why is that? I think what... what, what uh, the uh, gentleman there just said before, it, for me at least in terms of in fellowship and residency having seen a few, it's a high failure rate because essentially 
when you're doing that, if you're lasing and sort of uh, dissecting off that mesh that's exposed, there's always some fibers or mesh that's sort of, you know, deeper within the urethra that typically poke back in, and that's where the recurrence occurs. So unless it's, I think the, the scenario is where I could potentially see it working if it's a single fiber, a small little extrusion, it may work, but typically the recurrences are pretty high from what I understand. That's, that's my, I, I agree completely. And I think the fact of the matter is, is when you're lasering, even if you're getting into the wall a little bit, there's always more of that mesh that is going partially through the urethra. Mm -hmm. And what's that going to do over time? And I think we've seen enough cases to know that a fair percentage of the time, it's gonna work its way back in. And I'd say the other advantage to proceeding first with a transvaginal approach is I think it's easier to operate on these patients if they have a continuous loop mm -hmm. of sling. Mm -hmm. yeah. And once somebody has divided it either within the urethra or done some sort of partial excision outside, mm -hmm. it, you know, I like to be able to grab some part of the sling and follow it the rest of its mm -hmm. course in order to know where I'm going. And so that's why I, I favor that usually as my first approach. I, I would say that there's a time and place for everything. So um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that I would never do anything. Um, and I've, I've laced stones off perforations in the urethra, uh, and then with the intent to go back in for a complete mesh excision, but uh, the one case that I can recall, she was completely obstructed. So she was in retention, looked in, there was a stone there, and said, hey, let's lace the stone, and then we can lace some mesh fibers and look in again, um, but with the intent to go back in. Um, and then there, you know, there might be the occasional case where this lady is really decrepit, can't pee, everything else, and she might have a little bit of a perforation there, and then you lace it, and then hopefully that's it, and then maybe she passes from other causes, but you're trying to get something done for them because they're somewhat symptomatic. But again, I would never say never, but uh, there are disadvantages to it. The tricky patient is the patient that's ecstatic with everything else, has had the mesh in for three, four, five, seven years, and you discover it incidentally, or you discover it with your urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. um, and everything else is good, and you're just trying to reduce the infection rate in these folks. Sure. Yeah. That's a really fantastic uh, point, and I think that is the more difficult situation here is the patient with what appears to us a catastrophic injury of the urethra like that, where you see mesh in the urethra, it's like it's horrible, and it's something that we, we know we can't just leave it there. But yeah, you're, you know that a major operation might change her from being ecstatic to having all sorts of problems again. That's a good point. Uh, with the bladder, uh, you know, it, this is very difficult to approach from a vaginal approach most of the time. Uh, when I have approached these transvaginally, they have been transobturator slings, and because more often I will see that the mesh perforation in the bladder is down posteriorly. Where, where you pass those trocars, as opposed to with a retropubic sling, it's gonna be way up high, and that's a really, in my experience, that's a really hard thing to reach from below. Mm -hmm. um, but of transoperator sling, you might be able to do it, but it also depends on what your, your skill level and your expertise is. Uh, but a retropubic approach uh, is, is better. If you, have, if you have the skill set, I think a robotic is an easier approach to do, and the patient also gets better faster. You're going to drop the bladder and open the retropubic space, much like you would approach approach a, uh, a robotic prostatectomy and identify the sling on the affected side because you've done a cystoscopy, which I'll probably repeat at the beginning. 
and you identify it as about the rectus belly, and you divide the sling from the rectus and trace it down to the bladder, and you take it, you, you, you take it out, and you repair the bladder. If you have trouble identifying it, sometimes it's helpful to make a midline cystotomy to look directly into the bladder. You can grab the mesh within the bladder, wiggle it, and start to see where it is outside the bladder, and then go that way. And like Dr. Feruzzi pointed out earlier, these are definitely slings I'm sending to the pathologist. Interposition flaps are sometimes helpful for urinary tract reconstruction. The Marius flap is something I will, if I'm going to use one, it's most commonly for a urethral perforation. If I feel like I can get at least three layers of healthy, well-vascularized tissue to close for a urethral repair, I do not use a Mardius, but if I feel like I'm not happy with the tissue quality or the patient has some other poor wound, feeling, wound healing aspect, a Mardius flap is a nice interposition flap there. With the bladder, if you're doing a transabdominal approach, often omentum can be put in place if needed. But to be honest, with a mesh perforation of a, of a retropubic arm on one side or the other, I haven't really found that to be necessary. Can I say something? Absolutely. Do I think it protects the urethra? Um, I do. I think, well, I, you know, I'm less worried about that because I know I'm not putting a synthetic in when I go back in. But I do think that the Mardius does make the planes a little bit easier to identify when you go back for the other sling because you have something there that you don't normally find in that vaginal space, and that's fat. It's still there. And that's, that's a really helpful thing to help identify that plane and, and, and stay a little safer outside the urethra. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that could be potentially, if, you know, if you're really comfortable with a Mardius, uh, I, th I think that can be a, a, a potential advantage for it. For a retropubic bladder repair, you know, I do recommend you leave a drain in postoperatively. We don't leave drains for transvaginal surgery. Um, they, can, they have a high infection risk. Uh, transvaginal revisions, when I do a, a vaginal reconstruction of the urethra, this is an outpatient procedure for me. I, I do leave a Foley in. Uh, for 10 to 21 days is, is what people say in the literature. I usually just do two weeks. I get a VCUG if I feel like it's, it's needed. It's never a wrong answer. Do you guys routinely get one? I do, yeah. yeah. How about you? It, it, it's it a document. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For the bladder, it's just a simple cystogram will be fine if you don't need to see the urethra. Um, if, you know, I don't, I don't do them as often anymore, but it depends on what your experience is. This is a picture of the mesh that's been removed from the urinary tract with the calcification and the stone. I'm going to, uh, how are we doing on time? Uh, it's 11.03. I'm gonna see if, how long this video is. I might skip around a little bit. Yeah. Well, this doesn't So this is a patient with a mesh perforation that um, my colleague across town was nice enough to laser out beforehand. 
So I have mesh left right there in the bladder neck anteriorly that you can see on the cystoscopy. And when we look at the other side, it's there too. So this was lasered out, but it's still there in the walls. It's really proximal in the urethra. So what we did was we did an inverted U flap as opposed to just a transection for obstruction or mesh exposure in the, in the vagina. I think the U-flap is really important here so that you can have non-overlapping suture lines. We have a nice thick flap. This woman is right around the time of menopause. Her estrogen status was pretty good. We did a transverse incision in the periurethral fascia, which we then mobilized distally and proximally. This is very analogous to how you would take care of a urethral diverticulum. She had some nice periurethral fascia on both sides. And then we opened up the urethra. I find sometimes a nasal speculum helpful to look inside the urethra in women. And that helped us identify and then approach the um, anterior perforations of the arms. Uh, how many people, would anyone here have approached this through a uh, supramiatal approach? I mean, that's in play, right? So that's an anterior perforation near the bladder neck. And so you might think that a supramiatal approach would maybe get you better exposure instead of going this way um, and then getting right in the in the urethra there. Uh, trying to see, you just went into the mid-urethra to, to kind of mm -hmm. find where that, that was? Well, no, I, went, I went pretty proximal because it was near the bladder neck. Okay. But I repeated cystoscopy to help illustrate that to me before I cut the periurethral fascia and before I cut the urethra. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that you have to be, you know, forewarn patients about if you go supermeatal is that there, there's a risk of sexual dysfunction, right? And so you could, especially, you know, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Sajadi is a transgender surgeon, so he knows the risk with that, but that, that's another approach that you could do as a supermeatal incision and drop the urethra down that way. Yeah, so I, 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 I think the supermeatal approach is really great, but I do worry about sexual dysfunction, and this woman, that was very important to her. Mm -hmm. um, but we still counsel about the risk of dyspareunia when you're operating in this very sensitive area. The surgery is basically what, it, what Dr. Rubin is calling the, uh, the G-zone. Mm -hmm. These days, if you've seen Dr. Rachel Rubin talk about sexual function in women. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you really need it to open the urethra uh, ventrally, or are you able, because what I was uh, going to do is to, to try to feel uh, the course of the sling and to uh, find it laterally. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think that would have been wrong. My, my problem was that the middle of the sling was all gone from the previous lasering, and I couldn't really feel it up that high. It was really anteriorly on the urethra. In fact, I just couldn't feel it up that high. Uh, you know, in hindsight, I kind of wonder, too, if a, if a robotic approach would have been mm -hmm. helpful in this case mm -hmm. to get way down there and, and take, the, the, take it off of the urethra up there, although I don't have as much experience repairing the robotically. Mm. Um, has anyone done that here? 
And I want to end real quick with just an interesting case. This is a patient who had a TVT about 10 years ago and was seeing someone for incontinence and they noticed a, a mass and they thought it was very concerning, thought it was a urethral diverticulum. This is an MRI, this is the T2 imaging, but typically on a T2 imaging, you see the water, you see the fluid in the bladder is white. Typically a urethral diverticulum is going to be white as well, but this looks like a solid mass and it feels like a solid mass. And on biopsy, this was a giant cell tumor, which is a benign tumor, and I was surprised to find that it actually had already been reported elsewhere. It's a rare thing, but it can happen. And surgical excision of the sling with the tumor is, 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 the, is the treatment of choice. And now I'm going to turn the table over to Dr. Feruzzi. That's funny. Anytime I, I look at a, at a pelvic MRI, I tell my residents I'm useless in terms of prostate MRIs, and then the only thing I can find is that T2 bright light for a diverticulum. Well, it's interesting, <laughs> too, because her MRI, it looks like a prostate MRI. Yeah, because, like, yeah, it looks like a prostate, it looks right? Like she has yeah. A prostate. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Ferzine Feruzzi. I'm uh, out of Lenox Hill Hospital in New York, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, mesh complications associated with transvaginal mesh placement for prolapse as well as transabdominal mesh placement uh, for prolapse. So we're going to just kind of review origins of augmented repairs, early adaptations of transvaginal mesh repairs, and complications associated with transvaginally placed mesh for prolapse. So um, really the origins begin with what we know about traditional repairs with their reported recurrence rates, which are quite high, anywhere from 10 to 50 percent. Um, the initial attempts at augmented repairs included biologics. Um, the first trial of absorbable mesh versus non-mesh repairs uh, were in the, the management of posterior wall prolapse. And really, we saw a failure of both absorbable mesh and biological grafts that led the way to the use of synthetic meshes for prolapse. So the presumed safety of synthetic mesh for prolapse was really extrapolated from the 15-year data that we already had with synthetic midurethral slings for the treatment of stress urinary incontinence. So as a result of that, in the U.S. here, the FDA approved the use of uh, transvaginal mesh for the uh, management of uh, vaginal prolapse in the early, uh, in the early 2000 aughts. Um, there were multiple head-to-head -head trials of synthetic mesh and non-mesh repairs that did demonstrate improved objective results and lower recurrence rates in the synthetic mesh group. So for several years, in, in the United States at least, this became more and more popular. A lot of surgeons adapted to this uh, type of approach, put it into their surgical armamentarium, and quite a bit was done over that seven or eight year period. As Dr. Um, Tengarjaya had mentioned before, um, towards the end of that decade, though, the FDA came out with their series of white papers and warnings regarding mesh, not seeing any conclusive evidence that mesh uh, repairs conferred any greater clinical outcomes, and uh, also noted that they exposed patients to higher risks. As a result of that, there was certainly a downtrend in the use of transvaginal meshes that were used for prolapse, but they were still used in the U.S. and abroad for a number of years. Here in the U.S., as Dr. Tanger-Jair mentioned, um, by April of 2019, though, 
um, the FDA made a formal recommendation in the United States to ban the sale of these mesh kits for transvaginal mesh, and they no longer became available. And really after that, it was sort of like fell off a cliff. Uh, most surgeons essentially don't use this. There are still some surgeons spotted throughout the country who do use their own preformed mesh that they cut out um, for these types of prolapse repairs, but it's an exceedingly small cadre of surgeons who still use it. But there are still thousands of women who got these meshes over the course of greater more than a decade. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about evaluation of mesh complications. There's be some repetition here with what Dr. Sajadi had mentioned, so I'll try to get through that quickly. I don't want to bore everyone with the same ideas, but thorough history and physical exam. That ICS IUGA classification system, very cumbersome, difficult to use, and I would say generally not very well adapted by most surgeons who deal with these complications. But what's very important is obviously documenting the presenting complaint making sure you have the operative reports from their hospital records so you know exactly what was done, a detailed history of all the events that occurred after surgery, and again, very careful documentation because as we all know, there are very specific medical legal ramifications of managing these patients, so you really want to make sure that you're documenting everything very clearly when you're managing these patients. So just as Dr. Sujati mentioned for slings, a thorough abdominal pelvic exam with a speculum. Prior to speculum use, I usually do a digital exam just to assess all the vaginal areas. We evaluate and map all the compartments. Um, we're looking at areas of extrusion, sites of pain that are mapped in your physical exam, and also if we're worried about or concerned with uh, fistulas, localization of those fistulas. That's a great point, Dr. Ferruzzi, that I wish I'd pointed out earlier, too, is how you talk about you do a digital exam before you do a speculum exam. And I feel like that's so important because the speculum exam is more uncomfortable and it's really hard to elicit discomfort like yeah. after you've already hurt them with the speculum. Because even if you're very gentle, you know, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a pleasant thing. So, right. Yeah. So once you've started it, there's some guarding that occurs and it's hard to complete the exam. So. Um, so yeah, that's a good, that's a, that's a good suggestion. Um, other evaluation, if we're worried about a urethral or, or bladder perforation, a cystoscopy is certainly in order. If there's concern for or, con or symptoms consistent with a fistula, then a cystogram or a dye test. Um, urodynamic certainly in order for patients who have any type of voiding dysfunction. And proctoscopy, obviously done by the colorectal surgeon if you're worried if, uh, about the patient if they have symptoms like rectal bleeding or rectal discharge, that's abnormal. So what are the mesh complications? We look at typically mesh extrusion, mesh perforation, and then pain associated uh, with mesh. Um, so this is an illustration of one type of approach you can have for uh, vaginal mesh extrusion. And this is typically a U-shaped uh, incision to create that vaginal flap really for future coverage of the area that you're gonna excise that mesh. Lateral dissection, so you see that body of the mesh there. Uh, there it is, the body of the mesh there. Um, we have the right angle clamp behind that body, we divide in the midline, and then really separate those two sort of leaflets, if you will, of the mesh as you excise. So for erosion, same concept in terms of approaching, where we're doing that U-shaped incision, exposure of the mesh, um, getting behind that body of the mesh, dividing it, excising it, and then one step further would be, you can see in this left-handed picture, there's sort of a, a cystotomy right behind the Metzenbaum scissors that you can see. So once you've excised the mesh, you have that defect in the bladder that's closed in, in multiple layers. Um, 
again, multiple non-overlapping layers to reduce the risk of uh, refistulization in the future, and then closure of the vaginal wall is that third layer. So I've embedded, we're going to have some cases at the end of our lecture, but I've embedded some cases sort of like in the middle of my lecture with some videos. Um, so this is a, a, a case of mine, a patient of mine, a 58-year-old woman uh, whose status was a transvaginal mesh repair of anterior and, apical uh, anterior and apical prolapse with synthetic mesh, looked at the operative report, heavy bleeding during the procedure. They, they proceeded and ended up implanting the mesh. Postoperatively, she went into retention, followed by persistent bleeding and continuous incontinence. She came over to see me about a month or so after surgery as for a second opinion as to what was going on. In exam, we see two areas of extrusion here, and there's fluid draining from the proximal portion of that proximal mesh erosion. So obviously one of the things I'm thinking of is, is this a fistula? So just as I mentioned before, you know, we want to do, we're worried about a fistula, I'm going to get a cystogram. So when I do the cystogram, I see here the solid white arrow. You can see that fistula pretty clearly filling up partially the vaginal cavity. And then we see something else here which is interesting. So who wants to guess, raise hands or just shout out. Prize. What, what, this is a this is a prize worthy, I think. Who, what, 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 what do we think that that object is inside of the bladder? So you can see the balloon there, right? There's the fistula. What's that object there? Any guesses? Who thinks that's mesh? Raise your hand. Great, good. So you can't really see it on radiography mesh. So what do, what do you guys think that is? Someone say four by four? Raise your hand. Who said that? He's correct. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's the radio marker on a sponge. So as a result of that, I said, okay, well, we're going to have to take a look inside. So we look inside, and you can see uh, mesh here right at the base of the bladder along that, you know, uh, trigonal ridge there between the UOs right in the center. And then this is sort of like a really spooky shot kind of lurking in the background there is that sponge. <laughs> so I, likely as a result of the bleeding, sponges were placed. One obviously was misplaced. The counts were incorrect, and it eroded into the bladder. So this patient now has a fistula, a mesh extrusion, uh, mesh erosion rather, as well as a retained sponge in the bladder. So management, what do we do? Um, so my philosophy with these transvaginal mesh complications is the approach to removal should mimic and mirror the approach to placement. So for me, this is a vaginal case. This should be done purely vaginally, and I'll show you how we did it. And we actually published a series of, I think we had about, by this time, maybe 15 patients with this purely transvaginal approach to excision of this mesh, and it can be done. So uh, we see here, again, that initial picture with the extrusion erosion areas. We're going to make that U-shaped flap. They're retracted by the uh, blue hooks. You can see the body of the mesh there. Sorry, I should also say there are ureteral catheters, open-ended ureteral catheters on both sides, again, because of the proximity of the mesh to where the erosion is in the bladder, we want to make sure that we have access to those. Once we've dissected laterally, we got our right angle clamp behind the body of the mesh, just as we showed in the illustration. We make an incision right straight down the middle, and then we excise those two portions of the mesh. Once that's done, we extend the cystotomy slightly, a little bit more, in order to, you know, sort of birth that four by four that's sitting inside the bladder. Once that's removed, 
we see here a you know, fairly good-sized cystotomy here. We can see the mucosa there. We're going to close that in multiple non-overlapping layers. The first layer will be a mucosal layer. The second will be a pubocervical fascial layer. And then finally, the uh, vaginal flap that we created in the first place. Mm -hmm. So those ureteral catheters we replaced with double-ended, uh, uh, double J-stents on both sides. Um, this is what the uh, excised mesh ended up looking like with the sponge there as well. So the Foley remained for two weeks. Patient had a, a cystogram, which was negative. The bilateral stents were kept in for six weeks postoperatively, then removed in the office. We did a renal ultrasound 12 weeks post-op just to make sure the patient didn't develop any obstruction over time. Why, uh, Dr. Ferruzzi, why did you guys leave the double J stents? We were just worried, because it was so close to where the ureteral orifices were, we were worried about edema and swelling and obstruction as a result of that. Because that area, that cystotomy we created was very close to the UOs. I think, I think that's a wise thing to do. And I've, I've, I bring it up because I've also had to avoid, when I, I knew I was going to do that, I've avoided the temptation to just place the double J's at the beginning. Because right. when you do this kind of manipulation and you try to pull a Raytec or 4x4 out of the bladder, I'm going to pull one of those stents yes. out probably. correct. Whereas yes. the long um, Pollock or, or, ye or yellow jacket, whatever you want to call it, is, is, it it's not going to get yanked out as easily. So I have a video of here I'm going to play of a different case. This was a patient who actually came in um, a, about a year after she had a prolapse mesh repair done with recurrent UTIs. And part of her workup was a cystoscopy. And you can see here, this is actually the arm of the mesh. I mean, I, I remember back when I was a fellow, I recall these, you know, vaginal mesh placements, and there were these typically four arms that were placed that uh, met with where the body was uh, over the prolapse region. So this was actually one of the arms that had perforated through the bladder very close to the right ureter. There's another UCAT there in the right ureter. So um, we're going to play this here. So this is a case very similar. Again, we were able to approach this completely vaginally. Um, there's a little bit of a pause here before it starts. So we're going to make another type of flap incision. This is sort of a reverse C flap incision. The area of interest is right up here in this corner. So once we've done that, we're going to dissect the vaginal wall off. We're going to go as laterally as we can, anteriorly to where we know that arm of mesh is. So now here I'm palpating um, where that arm of mesh is. And I'm going to use some blunt dissection just to insinuate both inferior and superior to that arm of the mesh. You can see they're sort of digitating with the finger there, creating that space. And once we have enough of a space there, we're going to come in with a right angle clamp and do some further blunt dissection. I can now see and feel where that arm of the mesh is. What I want to do is get all the way behind it. And then you can see where the entry point medially to the bladder, laterally to the pelvic sidewall. We're going to divide it as far lateral as we can. Now, once we grasp that, we use that as a handle on our entryway into the bladder. Up here in the right-hand corner, this is what I'm seeing cystoscopically as I'm pulling on that. And you can see I'm sort of pulling the bladder down. So I know I'm on the right track. I've got that arm. Now I'm just going to sort of use it almost like as a highway, my lead point into the bladder. And this is what we see in all meshes, this sort of like rind that forms around the mesh. So I'm going to find that rind. I'm going to dissect right onto the mesh here, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, where's my entry point for where I'm going to get into the bladder? Now I'm going to retract this laterally. And finally, I just sort of have to, you know, make, make the move, cut into there. 
there I'm into the bladder. You see a little bit of bleeding there. I know that's mucosa. I'm no, I know I'm entering the lumen of the bladder. So once I know that and I see the area of the bladder that has the extruded mesh, I'm going to dissect that further laterally. Now I'm going to retract here and I'll, the, the video will pause and it'll show everyone with a yellow arrow where the edge of the mucosa is. So here I'm going to retract right there and you can see the edge of the mucosa right there. There it is. Okay. And so now I know my landmarks. Now I'm just going to pro uh, proceed and, and uh, remove the remainder of that mesh now that I'm outside. There's the, again, there's the border of the, uh, of the mucosa of the, of the bladder. Now I'm outside the bladder and I'm excising the remainder of that arm of the mesh and I'm going to cut it and remove it. I'm going to amputate it in just a second right there. So that, that's removed there. And now I'm going to close the bladder in a few layers. This just, the sound just sort of shows the size of the defect, about, about a centimeter. So the first layer is a mucosal layer. We use a 3-0 absorbable suture to close that. And I, and I would typically just run that. So we run that in this portion. So, and, so I, will, I will note, if you're not as expert as exposing as Dr. Feruzzi is, that you might lose where that mucosa is, right? And then you get a uh, vesicovaginal fistula. So um, for those that are not as expert at that dissection, um, I will sometimes put staves in uh, once you see that mucosa, because you know you don't have that yellow pointer on the video there to show you where it is, just so you remember where the mucosa is. A couple yeah. other tricks, you know, if you have that Foley in, as you, ir as you fill the bladder and look for where the irrigation's coming out, or you could just stick a scope in, too, and look for the light, and that helps you illustrate those edges, too, so you can get, the then put a stay suture on it so you don't lose it if, you've, if you haven't done that yet. Yeah, good suggestions. So I just pause here just so I can, so, so once I've had that first layer closed, I'm looking inside, I can see I can move the ureteral catheter, it's in continuity, and you can actually see efflux of urine. So I know that the ureter is, is safe. Once I've established that, I'm looking back into the bladder, I'm making sure there's no other mesh that I can see inside. That's just with a single layer that's closed. I don't show it on the video, but we do do a cystogram, uh, not cystogram, sorry, a retrograde fill with dye to make sure it's nice and sealed. Once that's closed, we do a secondary uh, uh, layer of closure here. I'm just gonna fast forward just so that you guys aren't watching that. Kind of just the suturing. And that's closed here. Oh, sorry. So there, there, that's the second layer that's closed. And once that's closed, we're going to close that vaginal wall as the flap. Do you wiggle the catheter again after that second layer? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah. Make sure I haven't caught anything. Yes. Because I think a lot of times with that muscularis, you actually get a little bit, you might even be closer to it. So I think that's uh, important to check. And Are then you? same thing, you can see the ureteral catheter here. Again, just for safety's sake, because we're so close mm -hmm. to the ureter, a stent is left, and then we remove that four to six weeks later. Um, the patient mm -hmm. did great. Solved the recurrent UTI issue. So uh, the next uh, area we're going to just chat really quickly about here is abdominal sacrolpexes and mesh. Um, complications associated with these repairs. Uh, we're going to briefly go over just origins of sacral colpexes, evolution to laparotic technique, and complications. So, uh, abdominal sacral colpexes long considered the gold standard for apical pelvic organ prolapse based on level one evidence. The lap approach was introduced, introduced by Nazat in 1994, followed by the robotic approach, which was described in 2004. Uh, and subsequently in 2005, the FDA approved the Da Vinci robotic technology for gynecological 
applications. These are the complications that we have to contend with when we're, when we're talking about abdominal cyclocopexes. So vaginal mesh extrusion, visceral mesh perforation, pain associated with mesh, bowel obstruction, and osteomyelitis and spondodiscitis. Um, so intraoperative complications, things we worry about. Uh, hemorrhaging, bleeding, specifically in the presacral area, we have the middle sacral artery there. Uh, there are also plexus of veins there. With those vessels, they tend to retract once you have uh, injured them or come across them. Hemorrhage can be managed with stainless steel thumbtacks, bone wax, or figure of eight sutures. Visceral injury is also something we're always aware of, bowel, bladder, or ureter. So same idea with uh, abdominal sacrocopexy mesh complications, you know, thorough history, thorough exam, I'm not going to repeat that but because we've all, you know, gone through that already. Again, with these complications, we see specifically mesh extrusion or erosion. The approach varies according to the, to the location of the mesh extrusion or erosion, but I would say the same sort of basic tenant that we use for transvaginally placed mesh, I would use for abdominally placed mesh. Typically, when we see these types of erosions, more often than not, they're at the apex of the vagina, or if they're visceral perforations, they're much more proximal, typically. Um, so my feeling is the best approach likely would be an abdominal approach, whether that would be an abdominal um, approach or, uh, uh, through an open method or laparoscopic or robotic. Bowel obstruction, the incidence of postoperative ileus is about 3.6%, reoperation uh, rate at about 1.1%. Previous surgeries obviously is the main risk factor for this specific complication. I'm not going to give, I'm not going to go too in depth about osteomyelitis and spondylodiscitis because Dr. Tenajaya has got a great case um, of this specific issue, but I'll just say it's fairly rare, typically heralded by the presence of persistent lower back pain. Um, MRI is the form of imaging that is preferred. Um, management is, is actually, um, because it's kind of uncommon, is really informed by case reports in, in, in the current literature. There aren't really great, like, large studies that look at this specific complication. But management ranges from extended antibiotics uh, to uh, excision of the mesh and any necessary uh, debridement, depending on what type of infection that you're dealing with. So here's another case here, history here. So this is a 44-year-old woman who, with pelvic organ prolapse, whose status was a hysterectomy with sacrocopexy with synthetic mesh. She had persistent bleeding for uh, starting at four weeks postoperatively. The primary this was done at an outside institution. The primary surgeon who performed the procedure had done two separate sort of takebacks to the OR in order to remove the extruded mesh. Both attempts were vaginal, and both failed. Um, she had persistent bleeding, dyspareunia, cervical pain, and she came to me as a second opinion because she just wanted everything out. Um, and uh, her exam showed, you know, pretty impressive uh, mesh extrusion, uh, about three by three centimeter extruded mesh at the apex, partially towards the anterior vaginal wall. Bleeding was noted, uh, and oozing was noted at the extruded site. There was no other fluid in the vault. There was no real concern or complaint of incontinence, so there was no concern of uh, fistula there. Um, cystoscopy, I, I did perform the cystoscopy, unremarkable. MRI did show some inflammation in the sacral area, but no discrete fluid collection. So this is a video of that, this exact patient. Uh, we opted for a transabdominal robotic approach to removing uh, the mesh. So the beginning of the video, unfortunately, didn't press record soon enough. So we did already mm -hmm. separate the mesh from the sacral promontory, which you can see here. Um, but once we have that mesh lifted off and we grab it with one of the robotic arms, we just use it as a handle. 
And the same concept, we just kind of follow along, use that as our highway, and sort of follow along until we get to its insertion point on the uh, apex of the vagina. So here, here we just see the dissection um, using cautery, and it lifts off fairly easily. Once we get all the way down to the vagina, we then basically make a circumferential incision around where it attaches uh, to the vagina. Um, we have an EEA sizer inside the vagina, sort of holding everything up in order to help dissect uh, against. Um, this is done both with uh, cautery as well as sharp dissection. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the difficult things in regards to successful prolapse surgery with synthetic mesh and getting a complication afterwards, right? Because if it's a successful surgery, your apex is now minus seven, minus eight. And so if you're trying to get a transvaginal surgery done and you're trying to reach up to the apex, yes. you don't, you can't, I mean, it's impossible to get down, right? I mean, it's successful. Right. So that's why this approach right here uh, being demonstrated is, is really nice if you can get it done. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. The, 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 the access is so much easier abdominally. Yeah. Because regardless of how well supported it is, you'll have you'll be able to get to it. So that's the the arm that's con, you know connected from the vagina to the sacral sacral promontory. That's removed. Then from below, with a finger, we're able to kind of push that extruded mesh inside the abdominal mm -hmm. cavity. You can see some of the ethabon sutures that were divided, separated, and now we're just going to try to remove essentially as much of that mesh as we can that's been extruded. And it's a fair amount um, mm -hmm. that we're able to get out. So again, we're going to dissect this all from this abdominal route. We're going to circumscribe it, excise it, amputate that last little fiber there. And then from below, we do a thorough exam and make sure there's no other mesh inside the vagina. We're completely clear uh, of any other extruded mesh. We go back to the promontory. We can see a couple of the ethabon sutures. I try to remove them um, because they're just a nidus for infection. Um, it's still a foreign body there. She had that pain, so we want to make sure that that's all removed, not present. She does not have to worry about it anymore. And then once that's done, we're just going to close uh, the uh, vaginotomy in a couple layers. So there'll be a an, sort of an inner mucosal layer that will close in a running fashion with an absorbable suture, and then an outer layer. So just sort of like to move things along so that you guys aren't bored with watching me suture. Um, So that's, yeah. once that's done, that's the first layer that's closed. And then just for sort of reinforcement's sake, I'll place a second uh, closure layer. And I think in this case, we, I, used, I used this Vicro for the first, and then I used a, a barbed suture, uh, like a V-lock suture, to close that secondary did, layer. Did you place your ureteral catheters at the beginning of this case? For hers, I did not, because I wasn't really near or close to uh, the UO, so I didn't really have a big concern there. There was no uh, mm. uh, visceral perforation, so I wasn't really no, concerned. No, yeah, the only time I'd get concerned is when you're working on that um, arm up near the sacrum and the, where the mesh has been reach repaired and analyzed, yeah. and sometimes it can get a little closer, so. But, um, but I, I mean, you I, stayed out of it, so that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that's what matters. I think reasonable 100%. If there's any concern, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a, you know, a good suggestion. I mean, did you form cystoscopy afterwards or no? I do, yeah. You did, yeah. 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 yeah, I do, just to make sure. We yeah, sure. I mean, with that pushing and that mesh being pushed, you don't know. I mean, that's, you would think that's the anterior arm coming down yes. as well, right? So. Yeah. And then once that's closed, um, again, we, I sort of very maniacal about it. Repeat a pelvic exam, making sure there's yeah. nothing left over inside. And she did great. No more bleeding, no more dyspareunia. Very happy. That's it.
Prolapse-wise? Prolapse-wise, the sacral spinous fixation for her vaginally. You did it at that time or you yeah, did it later? at that time, yeah. Okay. I didn't. Did you do it robotically or did you just do it? No, I did it That'd be cool. Okay, now it's time for some cases and then we're gonna wrap up. So, I'm gonna start with the first one. This was a 70-year-old woman who had stress incontinence and she underwent a transobturator sling in 2013. This is a real case of mine. And I was, I was telling these guys later, you know, sometimes these patients are the, the gift that keeps on giving. She's see, subsequently seen me for, I think, five different pelvic floor issues you know, for the subsequent years. Um, but anyway, after her transobturator sling, she had very significant voiding dysfunction, trouble emptying her bladder, and dyspareunia. But she was continent. On pelvic exam, she had urethral hypermobility. She had tenderness in the bilateral sulci, kind of what I was talking about earlier in those little corners where you often see it with the transopterior sling. Her post-void residual was 150 milliliters, and in this case, she ended up having the full core press and already had a uh, urodynamics that showed bladder outlet obstruction. Um, what does what, what's, what's anyone want to do on this case? Any takers from the audience? Look in her bladder? That's an excellent point. So we did a cystoscopy, completely normal. Excision, how much you want to take out? Incision or excision? Who votes for a, a, tra who votes for a sling incision? So, so um, just to recap, because I was talking to Dr. Peruzzi, she's coming in with what complaint? She has... What did she complain to you about? Dyspareunia and voiding dysfunction. Both? Yes. Which one's worse? Both. And I guarantee you ask her too, she'd say the same thing. Sure. So I, if, it's, if like I, the, it's like the mixed incontinence patient. Which, yeah. would, which one's worse? No, I always, yes. I, no, no, I, I, I haven't <laughs> prioritized that. But I, I would start by saying, look, if it's going to be both, and we're going to, we have urodynamics, you're kind of setting it up on a T here, right? She has an elevated PBR. She has urodynamics that shows bladder outlet obstruction. And she has tenderness on bilateral sulci. Yes. I touch each sulcus, and she's like, yes, when I have sex with my husband, that's where it hurts, and that's where it hurts. That both sides. I'm gonna I'm gonna dissect all, all of it out to wherever the tenderness is and excise it, not just do an incision, because I'm trying to handle both. So you're gonna do the entire vaginal portion of the sling. So yeah, I would do I would do a complete vaginal removal and leave the extra vaginal parts of the arms behind. So I mean I think I think that's totally reasonable. The only thing I would say is is by doing that, you know, you're you're likely relegating her to having continence again. And this is, and what I'm, what I'm about to say now is not like based on any literature, there's not a lot of science behind it, but I would say even though she has pain in those sulci, sometimes that, can, that pain can be associated with over-tensioning of the sling. So a more conservative measure, and this is a conversation you have with the patient, so if you tell her, you know, we can do, we have two options. You know, we have one option of just completely removing the entire sling, but you have a pretty darn good chance of being incontinent afterwards. Or we can just do a sling incision, relieve some of that tension. And I've had scenarios where if you do that, the pain can resolve if you relieve that tension right in the middle. 
and the caveat there that you tell the patient is, is that's less aggressive. It could address the obstructive issues. It could potentially address the pain issues, but you always leave yourself an out and say, if that doesn't work, you may need to come back and have the remainder of the sling excised. So that means it's really a two-stage procedure, but really it's up to the patient, you know, what their goals are. That's why, I think that's why Chris asked, what's bothering you more? Yeah. Um, so if it's really more the obstruction that's bothering you more, I feel like that argues towards doing that more conservative approach, but. And, and that, that's a really good point, whether you stage it or not, right? And so it's what kind of indicators are you getting from this patient of, oh, if I just take everything out as much as I can and she doesn't have obturator pain in her hips and her thighs and everything else, and I take it out, then you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Sorry, I'm done, right? Um, but if you're getting the kind of gist that this person wants to go a stage route and you have that shared decision making and go for that, then yeah, I agree with that approach completely. So it's, this is the reason why we talk about these cases because there's no one catch fits all approach to it and that's really what is important. And I think these are, I think that's an important point because I do think that she has two problems but I think they come from a common source. Mm -hmm. She had a sling that was placed too tight which is putting tension in both of those sulci and giving her the obstruction. So I think it is a common denominator. So what's the right answer? So, well, I, I, can, I can't tell you the right answer. I can tell you what I did. <laughs> so what, what I did in this case was I removed the entire sub urethra, the entire vaginal portion of the sling. Now, I, and I did counsel her that I thought that there was a higher risk. I would say the probably higher than that 50% I quote patient for a sling incision um, risk of recurrent stress incontinence. Who would do another sling at the same time as the excision? Anyone in the audience? You know, and this is, I still debate whether it's the right, would you, either of you guys? No. And I still debate that too, and the question is, it's just like, if she still has voiding dysfunction, or if she still has dyspareunia, I'm gonna wonder, is it because it's something other than the sling I took out, or did I just cause that same problem again? And, and, and that's the thing that's important to counsel these patients because they really, when you tell them the idea that you, they may have that again and then they may have that incontinence again and then you have to wait till they heal up before you do another procedure, that can be a frustrating thing to consider. There's a question coming. Oh, sorry. I would probably, I would probably wait like, I think I waited three months in her case, but I would probably wait like, I don't even think six weeks or Two months probably would be a bad answer. What do you guys think? I mean, again, not, not really based on any literature, but I would say three months. That's why I would wait. So, yeah, I excise it. So she, and, and, and thankfully, the dyspareunia completely went away. The voiding dysfunction completely went away. But she's three pads a day, recurrent stress incontinence. And because, go ahead. No, absolutely. You mean a synthetic sling? Yeah, or the exact same approach. I would likely do a fascial sling for her. Not, a, not another synthetic sling, just given her complication that she had. I, I don't know. I, I might go retropubic. But she did have voiding dysfunction, right? So I, I'd probably, probably get a urodynamic study again just to make sure she's not also alpha voiding and then kind of counsel her on that. You know, and I, 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 was, I tried to, to be a completist too. I, you know, I had her do some physical therapy again just to maximize everything and even tried an incontinence pessary. And, uh, and then this is exactly the scenario that, that we want to talk about is what do we do? You know, what, did, what, what would you do for her recurrent stress incontinence if she says there's no way I'm getting mesh again? 
And, uh, and if you, but you know, what if you did do a mixed regional sling? Do you, do you counsel her differently? Do you have a different approach? Do you tension differently? And then is there a third option? Right. So you had mentioned before, you know, what type of sling would you put in? That would be my answer. But there is another option for her. Um, she's not necessarily relegated 100% to have a sling. There's also the option of a bulking agent. Now, historically, I mean, I don't know everyone's experience in the audience is, is my experience has been not that great with bulking agents in years past. But there's a newer bulking agent that's been on the market for about a year and a half, which I've had some experience with, small, small amount of experience, but it's really a completely different sort of scenario and product and with completely different outcomes. Let's try Bulkamit here. It's Bulkamit is the name of the bulking agent, yeah. Yeah, what's been, ex I've, what's I've been your experience, experience with that? That's a that's a good point. How how many people do a frequent? Well, do you took them like a birch? Yes. Sir. Yeah. How many people here routinely perform a birch? You guys, you guys do do much birches? I don't, I don't do birches. So, but that is an option. That's I think it's a great option as long as she has good urethral hypermobility. You know, I do get concerned about you know birches. I do get concerned about voiding dysfunction mm -hmm. again. Um, and, and there it is a little bit more tricky to relieve the void dysfunction then. Do you do, do, you do them laparoscopically? No. Okay. Um, and then, uh, you know, in this case, I do think um, a retropubic, I do think a retropubic sling is, is an appropriate option in the right counseling, because you might say, hey, she had these issues with pain, she had these issues with void dysfunction, you're going to do a retropubic sling, which has a higher rate of void dysfunction than transoptrator sling. And you might be right, but I would also argue she had a transoptrator sling that was placed, you know, frankly, incorrectly. It was put in too tight to begin with. So if you are more mindful of the technique, you might have a different outcome. I think a bulking agent's a great option. I think a fascial sling is a reasonable option too, but yes, you do have to counsel them that higher risk of voiding dysfunction takes longer to resolve Similar with a birch, a little bit lower rate of voiding dysfunction than with a fascial sling, but you know, it's, it has, it, I think that's a reasonable option as well. Any additional thoughts? Um, no, I would just say it sounds like this specific patient did not want any mesh, and I agree with you. Part of it's technique, but and I would just say you can also place it perfectly well and still have an issue with mm -hmm. dyspareunia. It's still a potential. So you have someone who's had that issue already. It's just tough, I guess. You know, if she were to have another synthetic sling, which was placed correctly, but still then develop recurrent dyspareunia or pain, it's, that's a hard conversation to have with that patient after the Absolute, second time. Absolutely. But it's also interesting that I think you, you, you went over the slides really quickly because we're, you know, trying to get through these cases, but you also offered a, an incontinence pestry, right? So when we're considering yeah. all the options, an incontinence yeah. pestry out there, birch culpa suspension, right, that is a non-mesh based repair. Um, those are all on the table for that. And I offered her physical th public for physical therapy, to be, to be honest, because prior to her outside transoptrator sling, she'd never been offered it before. So, you know, it's always important to remember to discuss um, conservative measures with the patient because, you know, some patients get complications. And mm -hmm. if it could have been avoided, it would be nice to avoid it. Yeah.
So Dr. Fruzzi was kind of uh, alluding to this uh, coming up here in regards to my case. Uh, and so this is a female with pain and prolapse. And so she had a previous transvaginal repair and also TOT in 2005. Uh, she had a post-hysterectomy pelvic organ prolapse and also stress urine incontinence surgery before then. So she's already been operated before she had um, that mesh and TOT. Uh, and then she's, she's very simple. So in 2007, 2015, and 2018, not as in simple-minded, but simple patient, uh, she had multiple surgeries uh, outdone for endoscopic bladder mesh perforation, supposedly. And now she has recurrent pelvic organ prolapse, and so she comes to your clinic with uh, this whole history. Uh, and so luckily enough, we do have the op note, and uh, this op note is in regards to her original surgery before. And you, you can see here that uh, they, they attempted to do a augmented repair with Pelvisoft. So Pelvisoft is a um, it's a porcine acellular matrix that is not mesh-based, but it's a, it's a biologic. Uh, and then bias and sutures were placed to put it in place, and that was uh, that. And then she had the TOT, which is obviously a synthetic mesh. So that's kind of her history. There's an interesting you know. thing in that operative note, too. I see this um, out there, too, is the term UVJ used in two different ways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a urethrovesical junction. Yeah, because to me the UVJ usually means the urethrovesical junction, but I see commonly in patients who have a gynecologic background to use UVJ meaning the bladder neck. So yeah. Something to keep in mind. Yeah. And so, and so that might get you confused in regards to where exactly you're looking for if you did have a mesh. This is a biologic, of course. Uh, and then from a previous surgery, you also have this. And so you can see that they were, they were doing something uh, in regards to it, endoscopic, uh, and then they saw some mass, they tried to TUR it, they saw this foreign body, and it was a green suture. So the, the nice thing is, is that when you have op notes and you can look back at them, right, so when you're looking at this and saying, okay, so are we dealing with a synthetic mesh that they're doing something with uh, TURing some green suture, uh, the biasin is, it should have been gone by now, right, because that's, that's, that's not right, it's monofilament and it's absorbable. And then, this is kind of funny that we just mentioned this, uh, this suture that's been TUR'd now three times and is at the 11 o'clock position at uh, the bladder neck area is probably from her previous anti-incontinence surgery. So she had a hysterectomy and an anti-incontinence surgery. She probably had a, a birth at the same time. So these are the sutures related to that that they're, that they're going after. So um, this is what she like presents in clinic in terms of uh, what's going on with her prolapse. Uh, they scoped her again, and she still has mesh perforation supposedly inside the bladder. Um, and so this is a person that has had three times now endoscopic removal of what's going on, right? She has recurrent prolapse. Um, what say you guys in regards to how you want to help her out for her prolapse and pain now? Anyone? So recurrent prolapse, and she has some stuff in the bladder. Maybe mesh some foreign body reaction. How's her, how's her vaginal length? How well preserved is it? She's about a TVL of like six or seven, so you got some length. Any takers? I still haven't seen the patient yet. This is still her background. <laughs> so I can tell you what was done. So the surgeon decided to do a partial cystectomy at the area that keeps on eroding through, right? She's had previous three endoscopic repairs. Those didn't work. So that kind of makes sense in regards to that. And then she had an abdominal, uh, open abdominal sacral cold pexy at the same time. Okay. Um, and if you've been listening to Dr. Ferruzzi's lecture, you kind of know where this is going, right? So two months after surgery, she's complaining of back pain. Uh, she says it's sciatica, but now she's having difficulty walking. Also, the pelvic organ prolapse has recurred. 
so now that's back down. Uh, she gets admitted to the hospital. She has blood cultures, urine cultures, positive for pseudomonas. Uh, for those of us that uh, talk to our intensivists, ESR and CRP are a little bit elevated, but her white count is completely normal. And then, like Dr. Fruzzi was saying, if you have a suspicion of such, you should probably get this, right? And so this is an MRI. And like I told you before, I only read MRIs for diverticulum, and so I need my radiologist, right, to point this out to me. But as you can see here, typically you're not going to note mesh. We don't, you don't see mesh on an MRI, right? Um, and so you see right here some inflammation here, a nice arrow sign, which is always helpful. And then you kind of see that inflammation going all the way down here, right, tracking all the way down here. And so what we're looking at here, um, is, is she, she's developing inflammation around that abdominal sacrocolpexy mesh, and that's what the pain is coming out towards. And so she, she gets a prolonged stay with IV antibiotics, she gets a pick line and everything else, and then at this point in time, she's three months out after this. Anything you'd want to do at this point? Anyone out there? Let her, let her marinate? Do you just let her sit for another six weeks? I mean, again, you know, this is kind of where you go on expert opinion. You say help to your senior partners. And how, how is she doing symptom-wise? So she says every time she gets antibiotics, she feels better. She feels better. It's six weeks of antibiotics, and she feels better. And she can walk a little bit afterwards. She's still on narcotics. But then afterwards, within like a month or so, then she starts feeling poorly, and then starts being a little bit febrile and, and yeah. not doing as well. And then has she, was she re-imaged after antibiotic course? She gets re-imaged about now probably every like two or three months and you, you keep seeing the same thing of a phlegmon. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, I want to be explicit with what you were alluding to earlier. You were saying you all, we all know where this is going, but I just want to be explicit. You know, the, 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 the technical problem here is that this woman had a partial cystectomy and a concomitant abdominal sacrocolpexy using synthetic mesh. You know, I, I have done a, a sacrocolpexy and I've had a bladder injury during the sacrocolpexy, which I repaired and then a couple layers and still put the mesh in, it worked out fine. This is a different scenario. You're talking about a partial, partial cystectomy is a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more involved of a closure and then to put synthetic mesh in at the same time of that, that's, that's a, that, I think that's a questionable decision that led to this complication. Yeah. And so I, I think that's really the take-home story here is that we've been talking about shared decision-making and everything else, and if you're going to go in and handle one thing, maybe you don't really need to handle the pelvic organ prolapse at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, maybe her pain was due to the fact that she had some sutures or birch sutures there that were still being exposed. And if you do that open partial, maybe come back at a later date to address the prolapse, right? Um, and then you don't have something like this that goes, that goes on that for months and months. We all want to help the patient with all of their problems at once, but yeah, it's not always the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, and so eventually six months out, when she finally made her way to me from her primary care doctor who said nothing was being done and she'd been biopsied by IR and everything else to find out what this phlegmon is, um, she eventually went to the OR, uh, and in my hands, an open approach, uh, and in my residents' hands, an open approach is a lot better after we spent lysis of adhesions for an hour and a half um, mm -hmm. versus doing it robotically. Uh, but you can see here, um, in regards to just digging down deep in the pelvis and then taking out that mesh. And so, uh, you know, the question is, is how much mesh do you take out, right? Um, Dr. Fruzzi showed a video of him taking out uh, from the abdominal sacral, uh, from the abdominal sacral colpexy, from the sacral pronotary all the way down to the eroded part or the perforated part at the vagina at the apex. In this case, what we're trying to do is because she had discitis, we're trying to locate the mesh that was actually on the disc space, right? and then take that out. So in actuality, I did not dig down uh, towards the vagina and take all that out because that wasn't extruded any part. 
And so, uh, let's see if this plays. And so, you know, it's a significant amount of dissection done there, and then we're just taking out the uh, part on the sacral pulmonary. She did not have any mesh in the bladder. Correct. Yeah, on cystoscopy she didn't. So they did a good job in terms of the partial cystectomy because well, it wasn't mesh that was at the bladder; it was actually just probably the ethylbond sutures from her, mm -hmm. her birch. Um, so that's so that's that. She's now using a pessary. That's a great question. Yeah. So I've offered her repair. As of right now, she's about a year and a half out from her surgery. But given all the morbidity and everything else of what she's gone through, she doesn't want. She'd rather just stay with a pessary. She's not sexually active. So even though, even though at the beginning I put she was sexually active, because I always ask that question, I was after a copoclysis. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the infection was gone as well. So there's still some foreign tissue, right? She does still have foreign tissue there. Yeah, at the, at the, at the cuff. Yeah, that's a good point, thank you. I wanted to use as many mics as I can. <laughs> So uh, this is a 65-year-old woman, and I'm going to try to um, wrap up, I think, after this one so that we can get you all out of here on time, who had uh, pelvic pain and recurrent urinary tract infections. This case is from about a month ago, and the reason I point that out is, you know, she had an anterior pair with a mesh augment that was an Elevate kit in 2011. You know, the, and the transvaginal mesh kit's not available on the market anymore. But this is relevant because we still have to manage these complications. They're yeah. still out there. So she had a bladder stone in 2017. It was lasered, and uh, there was mesh underneath the stone. And they lasered that out. And she thinks she got better, but she's not too sure. But now she has constant pelvic pain. She has recurrent urinary tract infections, culture documented. She's been on vaginal estrogen for six months. She's using it, and she's using it correctly, but she's still not getting better. And, you know, I did a pelvic exam on her. There's no mesh extrusion anywhere. She does have pretty significant high-tone pelvic floor dysfunction, which I counseled her on. I went ahead and got the uh, referral going to pelvic floor physical therapy, but I also brought her back for a cystoscopy, and I saw something that didn't belong there. And this is a couple of tiny stones. So, you know, I, 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 I think this case is interesting to me because you heard me at least with the urethra talking about earlier how I wasn't a huge fan of endoscopic treatments. But this is a really, really tiny situation. So um, would you guys approach this endoscopically or would you approach this with a more reconstructive approach? I mean, I, I, I would say because it's so small, it looks like there's those, that's the example I gave before, which is like maybe one or two little fibers sticking out with these little stones that form on them. So I would certainly say I would give it a try to try to take care of it endoscopically. The important thing being is, again, trying to you know, expose those fibers as best you can and excise right at the level you know, of the mucosa. And if you're exposing them enough or pulling up on them enough, hopefully they've retracted enough beyond the bladder lumen so that they don't recur. But that's pretty small. I mean, to take her and do like a major reconstruction is not a small thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think endoscopic is reasonable. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I, I, I think that's why I said never say never, because I guess this case popped in my mind before, right? But I mean, again, this is bladder. Uh, versus urethra and then also the source of the mesh. So you could also argue that if this is a piece of your 
elevate system that even if you endoscopically try something here, you have a lot of mesh underneath. So again, it's talking to the patient, seeing how concerned they are, seeing how symptomatic they are. You may be able to get rid of this just endoscopically, and then if the UTIs abate, and then maybe, I have a patient like this who's in her, I think she's in her 80s, right? And so every time the stone comes back, she has irritative LUTs. And so we go in, and she's in her 80s, quick MAC, lace it off, and then be done with it, right? And then one to two years later, take another look, right? Because it's not worth it to do a large surgery on her, have her in Trendelenburg for two or three hours, and then have her a DVT and then everything else, she's gonna leave the hospital, right? So, yeah. what'd you do? So what'd you do? Well, I tried to take it out, and we grabbed it, and you can barely see in this picture, I have a little bit better picture coming up, but there is a little thread right there of uh, clear mesh just underneath it. It's a little bit blurry, but that was the nidus for the stone formation. And there were two stones here. And, and this did turn out to be two small threads of mesh. And as far as I could tell, there wasn't really anything else. But when I tug and tug and tug, it didn't give. So I had to think of something else. Yeah, there you can see a little bit better there. So what we actually did was, and I talked to her about this preoperatively, um, with the bladder full, we placed a Carter Thomason device suprapubically into the bladder. And there, the stone's already been knocked off, but you could actually grab the mesh, pull up on it, and then we were able to use cystoscopic scissors to kind of slide down and cut really deep so we feel like we got that thread pretty deep. And that's one out. There's another thread there because we haven't grabbed the other one yet. And she is not having any more infections. Her pain is gone from a 7 out of 10 to a 6 out of 10. Pelvic floor physical therapy is still pending, and she's going to get another cystoscopy in three months to see if there's anything left. And if not, um, I'll, if, there's, if there is no residual mesh, I will probably look at her like once a year because yeah. these yeah. can be the gift that keeps on giving. And yeah. you know, I don't think she'll ever be out of the woods completely, but it might work. Yeah, I mean, there's a novel approach in regards to using that Carter Thompson to pull it out that way. It's been described in terms of perking into the bladder um, with a perk sheath and then removing it that way so you have more access. Because if you try to do everything transurethrally, it's, it's really difficult to do. Um, but there's been numerous ways described in regards to that if it's a very small kind of perforation. Yeah, so I've been involved with two cases of it. And the good thing to, to know is that it's such a small perk in that the patient did not have to have a Foley afterwards. She was able to avoid right afterwards. She didn't have a fistula or a leak out of her bladder. You're going to ask a question. time, I think yeah, we should wrap this up. I do want to say thank you all for coming here to a, a course at the end of the AUA, and please do complete the evaluations, and if there's something you want to see more of, let us know. If there's something you want to see less of, 
unless it's me, let us know. <laughs> and then we'd be happy to uh, modify this for the future. But thanks for coming.